Thank you for tuning in to the Believer's Church of Johnson City podcast. We are grateful you stopped by. Regardless of where you are in your faith journey, we hope today's teaching is both challenging and also encourages you to move closer to Jesus. You can subscribe to the podcast if you want weekly messages, leave a review of your experience, and if you wish to become a giving partner, you can do so by visiting our website at believerschurchjc.com. And of course, we want to encourage you to come see us in person. We are located at 6110 Kingsport Highway in Johnson City, Tennessee. As always, we hope you enjoy today's message. I want to show you a picture. Um, Does anybody know who this is? Anybody? Mickey Mouse. Yes. Yes. All right. Of course, you know who that is. Um, For years, Mickey was the most recognizable fictional character in the world. He's been replaced, by the way. Just found that out. Mario is now more recognizable than Mickey. Just for what it's worth. Um, But Mickey... Uh, you know, Mickey, you recognized him. He, has, he hasn't always looked like this. He actually has had a few changes over the years. Here's some examples of some different ways that Mickey looked. But even with these changes, he's still recognizable. Why? All right. Um, part of that is that Mickey was not intended to be a drawing. Mickey was intended to be a character. He has personality. He ha- he's a little bit narcissistic, if you've ever really paid attention to it. He's, uh, you know, he, he does certain things. He has a house. He has a dog. He has friends. He has a girlfriend. All of that stuff. You know, he's, he is a character that exists in this fictional world. Now, animators use great care to sketch out their characters and to imagine what they would be like and all of that. And they, um, they will draw them in different poses and expressions. And these rough drawings is where they kind of start out. And, and they do that to give the characters me, uh, motion and feeling. Now, this was especially important for Walt Disney because he actually had a team of animators. He would draw what they called keyframes. And then the team would draw all the transition frames in between. And so it was kind of important. He gave them careful instructions to make sure that Mickey stayed true to his character. Now, these drawings are known as character sketches. Real creative name, huh? Um, Character sketches, and they're not just used by animators. So writers use character sketches as well um, to help them develop out their characters and picture what they might look like or, or act like, and, you know, what their appearance is, the styles that they might wear, or their haircuts, things like that, what their, beha- their passions, their behaviors, and all of that is. Um, there was a, one creative writing course that, that put it this way. A character sketch allows writers to create more realistic more interesting characters. It's a good way to know how characters make decisions, take actions, and show themselves as people. It allows you to map out their personality traits. These traits determine how they react to problems in the story. Okay? Know how the characters make decisions, take action, and show themselves as people, and how they react 
to problems in the story. Now, I believe that God gives us character sketches in his word. He, he helps us to know um, how we're supposed to act or carry ourselves. And today's passage is a great, um, a great example of that. So before we get into that, um, I want to just let you know, if you haven't been following along with us, we are in part 28 of our series, Unstoppable Church. Um, started last summer, took a break, started back up this, um, this summer, and we're in part 28. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 1, if you want to flip in your Bibles to Acts 13. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Matt preached a message called the Spirit-Led Church. That was in Acts chapter 11, and he introduced us to the church at Antioch. And um, that church at Antioch was just an incredible church. It was a great message. It was from May 23rd. If you didn't hear it, go back and listen to the podcast. I strongly recommend that. Um, but we were introduced to this church. And then in Acts chapter 12, it kind of shifted back to Peter. And we saw Peter getting arrested. We saw James getting executed. Peter got arrested, was in jail. Um, Herod was going to have him killed. And then as we found out last week, uh, God reversed all of that. And Peter went free and Herod died. Um, good fun stuff. Uh, and then so that brings us back to chapter 13. And the focus is going to shift back to the church at Antioch. So let's pick up at verse 1. The church at Antioch included prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, nicknamed Niger, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, a childhood friend of Herod the ruler, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul to the work I've called them to undertake. After they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on these two and sent them off. After the Holy Spirit sent them on their way, they went down to Seleucia. From there, they sailed to Cyprus. In Salamis, they proclaimed God's word in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their assistant. They traveled throughout the island until they arrived at Paphos. There, they found a certain man named Bar-Jesus, a Jew who was a false prophet and practiced sorcery. He kept company with the governor of that province, an intelligent man named Sergius Paulus. The governor sent for Barnabas and Saul since he wanted to hear God's word. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that's what people understood his name meant, opposed them, trying to steer the governor away from the faith. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Saul, also known as Paul, glared at Bar-Jesus and said, you are a deceiver and trickster, you devil, you attack anything that is right. Will you never stop twisting the straight ways of the Lord into crooked paths? Listen, the Lord's power is set against you. You will be blind for a while, unable even to see the light or see the daylight. At once, Bar-Jesus' eyes were darkened and he began to grope about for someone to lead him around by the hand. When the governor saw what had taken place, he came to believe for he was astonished by the teaching about the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that your spirit guides us into all truth. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would just take this passage, let it come alive in our hearts and minds. May we be obedient to your word and, and responsive to your leading and be what you've called us to be. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, with passages like this, there's a tendency um, to just kind of concentrate on the storyline. Right? We've, we've all grown up with literature. We've read stories, or, or at least we've watched movies. All right, let's be honest. Um, but we've got this, we, we, we know how to follow the storyline. And so we just kind of go into a story like this and we, we follow the plot. And it's really easy to skip over to the juicy parts. And this has some juicy parts. You know, it's, it's some real good conflict and all of that. But I want to just make a statement that the scripture wasn't meant to just read through. It's meant to meditate on. And everything that's in the scripture is there for a reason, including those parts we often skip over. Um, I believe that this passage offers us three character sketches, um, examples of how specific people make decisions, take action, and show themselves as people, and how they react to problems in the story. And so what can we see here? Um, the first one, I think, is a sketch on what does obedience look like? What does obedience look like? So um, if you remember when, when Pastor Matt introduced this, he was talking about the need for us to be a spirit-led church. And the church at Antioch was, was that example of a spirit-led church. They were sensitive to what God was doing. They were listening to what God was doing. They were obedient to him. And I think we see more of that here. So what does that look like? How does that play out in how we make decisions, take actions, and show ourselves as people? And the chapter starts out introducing us to some of the people at the church of Antioch. Right? So it says that um, these were the prophets and teachers. Now, basically what that means is the people it's about to list were the leaders at the church at Antioch. All right. But I want us to take a closer look at this list. So first there is, um, there's Barnabas. Now, if you remember the church in Jerusalem they had heard that God was doing some amazing things at Antioch. They were experiencing some amazing growth. So the church at Jerusalem sent Barnabas kind of to check it out and to oversee and to provide some guidance for them. Okay. And, and that was what was going on. Next, it mentions this Simeon nicknamed Niger. Now the word Niger means black and some translations even say called the black man. You know what else we know about Niger? Not a thing. That's it. That was the only detail that God chose to include in the scripture. All right. The next one, Lucius from Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is a country in northern Africa. It was far away, um, on the other side of northern Africa, farther away from, from Antioch. So, um, you know, he, he came here. We don't know why. We don't know what brought him there. Again, the only thing we know is where he's from. Then there's Manan, childhood friend of Herod. Now, childhood friend, we think of friend, it's like, okay, this is a buddy of mine, it's a friend, whatever. This term for childhood friend is much stronger than that. Um, it's more like he was a foster brother. They were raised together. They're like family. So he's, he's close with Herod, the ruler. Now let's put a little context here, because if you remember the last chapter, this Herod, the ruler, is the one who executed James and tried to execute Peter. 
That's this guy's foster brother. Then there's Saul. Now Saul, again context, only a few chapters earlier, back in in chapter 7, that's when they stoned Stephen. They killed Stephen. And Saul was there overseeing it. The church at Antioch was started by people who had fled Jerusalem because of the persecution. Now here's, here's the question. Keep in mind, this is the leadership of the church. And some of you are wondering what in the world this has to do with obedience. How is this list a character sketch? I promise we'll get there, but I want to, I don't want to move off of this list quite yet. We have a list of people with a few seemingly random details here. So we've got Barnabas, the guy from HQ sent to check up on him. We've got Simeon, this guy of a different race. We've got Lucius, an immigrant. We've got Menaean, this, this foster brother of, you know, of the ruler, the political enemy. And then we've got Saul, the former Christian killer. And that's who's leading the church. I believe there's two truths we can learn from this list. Two characteristics of being obedient to the Holy Spirit. First, they had unity amidst diversity. You think about just this list. There's Jews and Gentiles. It was multiracial. There were Roman citizens and refugees. There was the ruling class and there were the blue class workers. By cultural standards, these groups should not have been able to work together. They shouldn't even be able to be together without there being some kind of uprising. But they were. Because their identity was in Christ alone. Right? Their, their unity was in the mission that they had to serve Christ and to, to proclaim him to the world. It was the result of obedience Now, the same thing is true for us. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic status you come from. It doesn't matter what your heritage is or what your culture is or your political persuasion or your church background. We have an identity in Christ and we have a mission that we have all been called to and there should be unity in that. Amen. That is a characteristic of obedience. We don't always agree. We won't always agree. But we should always be unified in the mission, being led by God's Spirit. And if we're doing that, we can work through any disagreement. Now, there's another characteristic I believe we can see here. Both Manan and Saul had things in their past that were concerning. But they had trust in transformation. Think about it. Think how awkward it was. The church at Antioch, there's people at that church who remember Saul. They were there when Stephen died. They saw Saul standing there smugly approving of it. And now he's there as one of their leaders. Some of them may have been friends with Stephen. You think that wasn't hard? And Saul and Barnabas had just gotten back with news of Herod executing James. 
one of the original disciples and trying to execute Peter. And they're like, Herod, wait a minute. Manan, isn't that your foster brother? You think that wasn't challenging? Of course it was. But they understood something. They, they, they understood that we are not focused on our past. We're focused on our future. We understand that God's spirit is able to transform people and make us new. That not only could God change people, but God had changed people. Saul wasn't the Saul he had been. Manan wasn't his stepbrother. Saul would eventually sum it up this way in his letter to the Corinthians. He would say, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Some of you need to hear that. And you need to grab a hold of that. And that needs to be your takeaway. The old life's gone. And some of it is not for yourself. Some of it is for somebody else that you're holding bitterness toward or anger toward because of something they did before. And the old is gone. I love, I love how Pastor Matt is so transparent about his past. I mean, I, I, I love that because he's been through some things. He has stuff in his past. And the truth is we all have stuff in our past. We all have things where we've messed up. But being obedient to God's spirit means trusting in his power to transform. He leverages our past and turns our messes into messages of hope and grace. Well, let's, let's read on and see what else obedience looks like. It tells us that they were worshiping and fasting. Okay? Now, this is, this is kind of important. I grew up in... In a, in a Baptist church, and for some reason in the Baptist church, we always added an E in there, so we did the worshiping and feasting. And um, <clears throat> one of the things I like here at Believer's Church is every spring and every fall, um, we do a series that's called a, a, a spring or fall practice, and we talk about spiritual disciplines. And, and some of those spiritual disciplines are things like worshiping and fasting and praying and Bible study and things like that. Um, we just did in the spring, we did one on, on worship. And so these are spiritual disciplines and these people aren't just learning about it. They are practicing it. It says as they were worshiping and fasting. All right. The Holy Spirit is going to speak to them and give them very clear direction, but they had already established a pattern of obedience. And that looked like engaging in spiritual disciplines. So let me ask you this question. How many times, how many times do we cry out to God for wisdom and direction? Show us his will to make his path clear, but we aren't actually engaging in the spiritual disciplines he's already shown us. He's not going to reveal more to us until we're obedient to what he's already revealed. Amen. Um, many of you know, we, we moved back to this area last November. 
Um, but we had been, we'd been in South Carolina for about 22 years, and we really had felt God was closing the, that chapter of our lives. And we began to pray about what the next chapter was. And we were looking at different places and we kind of, we, we had some things in mind, but we were really looking all over the place. And, and as we uh, were, were doing this, we decided we would take every Monday and we would fast and pray. And, and so for almost a, a year, every Monday, we, we fasted and we prayed and it was amazing how many times specific answers came to us on Monday or first thing Tuesday morning. It was amazing. And now that's not a magic formula. That's not something, oh, if I do this, God's going to give me my answer I've been looking for. No, that's not the way God works. But God does bless obedience. And he does work through his processes. All right. And so obviously God brought us here. We're excited about that. Um, and, And he worked so many things out, so many things out to bring us to this place at this time. So the, the church in Antioch, they, they worshiped, they fasted, and they prayed, and the Holy Spirit answered. The Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to undertake. Now, I want you to notice what is not there. What's not there is the detailed plan. What's not there is the uh, financing solution. What's not there, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of things not there. It's just this, appoint them to the work I've you know, set them apart for the work I've appointed for them. Now, was there more that the Holy Spirit said? Maybe. It does say that, you know, they laid hands on them and sent them off so they at least knew what they were supposed to do. But it also says that, um, that they, after they fasted and prayed, they did this. So maybe they were asking for more direction. Maybe they were continuing to pray so God would show them what the next step was. Regardless of that, it says that they, um, they did lay their hands on them and they sent them off. They became the first missionaries. And so the Holy Spirit directed this missionary endeavor and they obeyed. Again, I don't want to gloss over that too quickly. I want you to stop and think what that meant because they didn't have cell phones and FaceTime and social media. Okay. When they went off, they left behind their family and their friends and their jobs and their resources. They didn't just get transferred to another location. They went completely in faith. They didn't have ATMs or bank accounts or checks. They had to carry with them what money that they had. And that was very dangerous. So it wasn't an easy decision. And yet it was for them because obedience was what they were about. What does obedience look like? It looks like being aligned to God's plan. Jesus had told his disciples they would be his witnesses throughout the world. The Holy Spirit was leading the church to do that. And the same is true for us. If you remember when Pastor Matt preached the the vision series, he talked about the shift that needed to happen. The first shift was a shift from being a church home to a sending station. God is still calling people to go share the gospel and share the message around the world. And God is calling people from this congregation to go plant new churches. 
So they go. Um, they set out. They take John Mark with them. That's going to be an important detail later in the story. But they sail to the island of Cyprus. They travel across the island to the opposite side, sharing about Jesus. And then they have a run-in with this guy named Bar-Jesus. And this gives us our second sketch. And that is, what does obstinance look like? Now, obstinance is defined as firmly or stubbornly adhering to one's purpose, opinion, etc., not yielding to argument, persuasion, or entreaty, characterized by inflexible persistence or an unyielding attitude. Basically, obstinance is the opposite of obedience. Right? So what does obstinance look like? Specifically, with things of God. Well, we see here that um, Bar-Jesus was Jewish. His name Bar-Jesus, that's actually a Jewish name. In, in Hebrew, it would have been Bar-Yeshua. It means the son of Joshua. He had not adopted a Roman name, so he still identified as Jewish. But clearly, it, it says he was also a false prophet. So as a prophet, he was still pretending to be a follower of God. There was a pretense of serving God, but he was using God for his own purposes and gain. He talked about God, but it was a spiritual facade, a religious facade. Now, he would have known about the promised Messiah. If he was Jewish, he would have heard about him all his life. He should have been interested in the message that Barnabas and Saul brought. But instead, he was threatened by them and their message. You see, he wasn't interested in God's plan, just his own. That's obstinance. And honestly... There are churches all across America that are filled with obstinate people. They want what's familiar and comfortable. They want God to bless their homes and families and careers. They want well-crafted, practical messages that help them navigate the complexities of life and offer hope and encouragement. They might give their time or money on occasion if the cause is good and they can make it work. And sometimes they even appreciate Hard truth, because it reminds them of their shortcomings and God's grace. But they're not interested in making sacrifices or uncomfortable changes. They're threatened by those who are. Now the truth is, if we're honest, there's some people in this room that are living a religious facade. We see another characteristic of obstinance. It says that Bar-Jesus practiced sorcery. Now, again, he was Jewish. He would have known that God specifically condemned sorcery in the Jewish law. He would have read about the kings of Israel who practiced sorcery and the judgment that God had poured out because of it. Yet he did it anyway. He was obstinate. And it took the form of being entangled by the enemy. So why was he into sorcery? I, I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us why. Only that he did. We can only guess. But if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, 
the Garden of Eden, the enemy comes to Adam and Eve, and he is telling them these lies. One of those lies he told them is, you know what? God just doesn't want you to do that because he knows then you'll have this. That lie of the enemy is that God is holding back on you. And the enemy tries to convince us that God isn't enough, that his plan is lacking. And we get entangled, probably not by sorcery, although it's possible. It's out there. Certainly you can see movies and stuff where it's, it's being promoted, but maybe not. But here are some other ways we get entangled. Religion and philosophy. We live in a digital age and we're constantly being bombarded with messaging that's full of philosophical ideas that are in contrast with what God has taught. <clears throat> this idea of freedom of religion Freedom of religion only applies when, it's, when it complies with accepted ideology. Otherwise, then it's no longer accepted. The other lie in the garden is when the enemy said, did God really say? Did God really mean that? And we see that all the time where people say, well, God didn't really mean that in the scripture. That's not really what... You know, and we interpret scripture by cultural standards and non-biblical worldviews. That's not the only way we get entangled. There's addictions and habits. Because, again, the enemy says God's not enough. So we look elsewhere for significance or purpose or pleasure or relief. And then those thoughts become actions and the actions become habits and the habits become addictions. We get entangled by culture. Um, I recently read a, a book called Rules of Civility. It was the, the list of 110 uh, rules that George Washington had written down by hand and practiced throughout his life. And it was talking about how to behave respectfully. And it was interesting reading it because cultures changed. And there's some things that, you know, that they considered really important that aren't important in our culture uh, today. I love movies like Crocodile Dundee or Kate and Leopold, where you take somebody and you drop them into a different culture. And there's the awkwardness as they're trying to navigate um, those, uh, those scenarios. But listen, culture, culture can entangle us. Uh, our culture embraces sin and makes, it, makes us the bad guys for calling it sin. You know, um, but it's not just bad things. There's also good things in our culture that distract us and keep us from what God wants us to do and be. The whole idea of the American dream can interfere with being submissive and obedient to God. All right? What about values and priorities? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things that we value, the things that are our priority are the things that are going to control what we do, how we use our resources. And, and let me just give you some examples of things that can entrap success. You know, people that are working, neglecting their families, neglecting their ministry because they're so caught up in being successful in the business world or, or whatever world they're in. Sports. I, 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 I told somebody the other day, no, it wasn't sports. It was, it was, it was music. Um, that a lot of times there's more worship that goes on at a rock concert than there are in a lot of churches. 
Um, it's not worship of God, but it's still worship. The same thing's true in sports. You know, there are people who are, uh, that are diehard loyal to their team that will spend thousands of dollars on season tickets and, and trips to go see their team play. They will get offended if somebody dares to criticize their team. And yet, when it comes to the things of the Lord, they never say a thing. I'll move on. Patriotism can be one of those things. Listen, I, 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 I am grateful for our country, but I don't worship our country. My citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Church. Church can be an entanglement when we put more emphasis on the church and the programs and the structures and even the people of the church and we neglecting God and his spirit and what he's leading. That's an entanglement. They're not bad things, but they can entangle us. And the enemy is so wily that he knows just how to get us off track. He doesn't need us to be full-blown reprobates. He just needs us not to be obedient. All right. The last one, last way we get entangled is relationships. Because again, the enemy says, God is not enough. And so I need a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse or a child in order to be fulfilled. I need my friends. And it doesn't matter if that relationship is toxic. I need it. Listen, toxic relationships are like addictions. They'll destroy you. So he was entangled by the enemy. There's more. Let's read on. It says that Bar Jesus kept company with the governor. Now the NLT translates that he attached himself to the governor. The idea was that the Roman governor was the most powerful person in the region. And Bar-Jesus wanted the connection to that power. He was power hungry. Right? Now that doesn't really need a lot of explanation. We all know people like this. And to be honest, we don't like them. All right? There's the, the teacher's pet when we were in school, right? Um, the employee who's always trying to earn brownie points with the boss. The pandering politician. You know, it's, it's easy to look at those people and say, yeah, I don't like that. It's easy to see it in others, but it's a lot harder to see it in the mirror. It's much more natural to uh, try to please people than it is to try to please God. Uh, it, it, but, but the truth is, being power hungry doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. If you think about it, God is all-powerful. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Doesn't it make sense then that if, if we really want that, we should be aligning ourselves with God? But the enemy says God's not enough. So we strive for money, for influence, for, for these other things, just like Elimus, obstinate. It says, so the governor decides that he wants to hear God's word, but Elimus... And had Elimus been an actual prophet, that would have been welcome news. But he wasn't, and he opposed them. He tried to steer the governor away from the faith because obstinance is controlling and manipulative. He was threatened, and he wasn't about to lose what he had worked so hard to establish. 
Obstinate people hang on to things because that's where they find their identity and significance. They aim to control, and when they can't control, they lash out and they attack. Obedient people are significant. They're secure in Christ. They're significant in Christ. They trust God's character and his plan. Obstinate people don't. To paraphrase Christian author and speaker Gary Chapman, he said, oh, obedient people, or when we're obedient, we minister. When we're obstinate, we manipulate. It's a good little test. When we're obedient, we minister. When we are obstinate, we manipulate. So we see this contrast between the believers at Antioch and the false prophet in Paphos. But I do believe there's another character sketch in this passage. And I, I want to look at that because it's so important. What does empowerment look like? What does empowerment look like? Now, there's a lot of cultural ideas about empowerment. It's a, it was at least a cultural buzzword. But we're talking about being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? Merriam-Webster says it. He defines empowerment as the act or action of empowering someone or something. The granting of the power, right, or authority to perform various acts or duties. It's a great definition. So the passage says that, um, it says, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Saul, also known as Paul. I think it's interesting there that the first time the scripture refers to him as Paul, is in context of him being empowered by the Holy Spirit. But look how that manifests itself. It says, Paul glared at Elimus. I love that. Um, my kids growing up, they, they, would, they knew when they were in trouble with me. And they, they had a term for it. They called it the daddy look. Any of you ever seen the daddy look? Huh? No, not enough of you. Um, all right. So... Uh, <laughs> Paul gives him the, the daddy look there. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. This is an uncomfortable truth for some of you, but, the, but, but it is truth. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't always mean being a happy, easygoing person. All right? Paul does this in spirit-empowered glaring. There's another term for that. It's called righteous indignation. Now, I do want to put in a, a, a big caveat here. Um, if you've ever studied temperaments, then you know there's, there's different kinds of, people are kind of wired different ways. I'm a choleric. That means I speak the language of, of power and control. I love passages like this because it's like, yes, uh, go get them, Paul, and, and all of that. But, um, but there's a difference between righteous indignation and self-righteous anger. It's really, 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 really important. So Here's the difference. Self-righteous anger is me-focused. How does this make me look or feel? You've embarrassed me. You've called me out and shown my deficiencies. I don't like that. I'm going to get angry with you. I don't agree with you, so I'm going to get angry with you. That is self-righteous anger. It's based on preferences, values, interpretations, comfort levels, ideology, etc. On the other hand, righteous indignation is kingdom-focused. It's how does this affect other people's view of or desire for God? So Jesus got angry several times. It's recorded in the, in, in the Gospels. You can go back and look at it. But every single time he got angry, 
He was angry because people were misrepresenting God and hindering other people from coming to God. That was it. He didn't get angry at sinners. He got angry at self-righteous religious people. And that's so important. So what makes you angry? Is it self-motivated? Or is it spiritually motivated? Is it kingdom motivated? Now, Paul didn't stop with glaring because he then says, you're a deceiver and trickster. You devil, you attack anything that's right. Will you never stop twisting the straight ways of the Lord into crooked paths? Those are some pretty harsh words. But keep in mind, Paul isn't just speaking his mind. He is speaking under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't just condemn him. He makes a bold prediction here. He says he's going to go blind. All my life, I grew up in church. All my life, I've heard sermons about Jesus and his disciples healing people. I never once heard a sermon about them sicking someone. Okay. But here it is right there in scripture. Um, Think about what Paul's doing. When he says this, you're going to go blind. He's really sticking his neck out. He, He is risking this. What if Elimus didn't go blind? What if Paul said that and nothing happened? You know, Paul would look pretty silly, pretty stupid. As a matter of fact, Elimus at that point would probably pull on his Jewish background and say, hey, you know what the law says about false prophets? If you don't know, they get put to death. So why was Paul willing to take the risk? Why? Because he was empowered. And that brings boldness. Boldness is confidence. It's confidence in God's power and faithfulness. It's confidence that God's spirit will never lead you where his power cannot sustain you. It's it's confidence that God is not going to call you and then not carry through. Paul was willing to speak the truth no matter how hard and then take those risks because he knew they weren't really risks at all. And look what happened. At once, for Jesus' eyes were darkened. See, God came through. He always does. God came through, and it wasn't a surprise. See, here's the thing. I think we get this wrong sometimes when we think about faith. We think that this is something we do. If I have enough faith, if I can produce enough faith, if I can just convince myself that this is true, that's not what faith is. Faith is knowing who God is and knowing that he is faithful and knowing that he is going to do what he said he would do. That's faith. So there's a third characteristic of empowerment here as well, and that's mercy. Some of you are going, where is that in this passage? This seemed pretty harsh and merciless, but look closer because Paul said you will be blind for a while. This wasn't permanent. This wasn't a, you're never going to see again. This was a, okay, because of this, there's going to be consequences here. But even in this rebuke and punishment, there was hope of reprieve. And there's always hope of reprieve. There's always grace. When we're empowered, there's always grace. 
And again, when we think back to the difference between self-righteous anger and righteous indignation, one of those differences is the desired result. When we are self-righteously anger, we want to see judgment and retribution. When we are empowered, we want to see restoration. Big difference. So my, my question is, who do we need to forgive? Who do we need to really start seeking restoration for? Well, back to the story, we're, we're wrapping it up um, here. It says that the governor was astonished by his teaching. He, was, he became a believer, but notice it wasn't the miracle that astonished him. It was the teaching. And I think the teaching is important because Paul made it clear what he taught about was the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus died. He died on the cross. He was buried. And three days later, he rose again. That was the teaching. And that's what astonished him. Now, why, why would that astonish him? Um, there's a couple of reasons. Because he's a Roman governor. He would have been familiar with crucifixion. He would have known what a horrific thing crucifixion was. And he would have known that there's no way anybody survives it. And that Jesus came back to life, that would have blown, his, blown him away. But even more so, he would have known that nobody would choose it. And the fact that Jesus willingly went to the cross in our place, that is what astonished him. And because of that, he became a believer. People are drawn to Jesus when we're empowered. People are drawn to Jesus. They're living, uh, our living empowered lives is attractive because people are desperate for something real, something meaningful. They're desperate. They don't know it, but they're desperate for God. And when we are living empowered lives, people see what it is that they're looking for. They may never have been able to describe it, but they recognize it. And they're drawn to Jesus. This week, Wes posted a, a thing on Facebook. I'm going to mention this, Wes. Uh, it said, live your life in a way that makes people love Jesus, not hate Christians. That's an empowered life. So what do we do with this? How do we take these character sketches and apply them to our lives? Got one more picture for you. Um, I asked my daughter to uh, draw some sketches for me. She loves to sketch and is amazing with that. I said, I, I want you to sketch out a picture of these three things, what obedience looks like. And you see him kneeling in prayer, being obedient to the spiritual disciplines and the leadership um, that, that God is, is providing. There's the, the, um, the obstinance standing in defiance and going, no, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, God. I'm going to do this my way. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to get uncomfortable. Just bless me. And then you've got empowerment. Truly letting God lead us. Letting him speak through us. Letting him help us to live in a way that makes people love Jesus and not hate Christians. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. The altar is open. I, what do you do with this? Ask yourself, which of those character sketches is you? And then which needs to be you? And then turn that over to God and let him work. Father, thank you for your truth. 
Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the, the things that you have shown us, the things that are supposed to help us know how to act, how to present ourselves as people, how to handle situations that we run across in our own stories. And Father, just, just work in us today. Help us to, to bring this to you, to place it at your feet and let you work in us, that we would be truly obedient, that we would not be obstinate, and most of all, Lord, that we would be empowered followers of Jesus for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you again for listening to the Believer's Church podcast. Make sure you join us next week as we continue in this series. Also, we'd love a chance to connect with you. Make sure you visit BelieversChurchJC.com and enjoy the rest of your week.